You're listening to the Virgin Radio Pridecast. Hello. Good evening. Welcome to your Sunday night here on Virgin Radio Pride with me, Emma Goswell. This is your weekend outing. Time to sit down, grab a glass of wine or your preferred beverage. And, uh, yeah, pay attention. I've got so much to tell you. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Now, I turned 50 this year and I've just about got to the stage where I feel like an adult. I just about think maybe I could be responsible for another human being or maybe just a goldfish. However, you're about to meet an incredible gay man and all he ever wanted in life was to be a dad. At 37, he is now the proud father to six children that he adopted, all with special needs. It's time now to meet Ben Carpenter. I started by asking him where the journey to parenthood started. I was told that I was the first single 21-year-old gay adopter to ever adopt in the UK. Wow. And I've also been told that that spreads as wide as um, worldwide because there's not a lot of 21-year-olds that will adopt. So well, I, I mean, most 21-year-olds want to go out and go on Grinder and have a good time and, you know, don't want to settle down and have children, do they? So Yeah, know. yeah. I guess that this was, you know, what, we, what we're going back now, I think it's 16 years nearly. Hmm. And I, you know, yes, I, you know, I could have quite easily gone out and, 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 and lived a, the life of a 21-year-old. But I guess I was that child from the age of 15 moving from a very urban sprawl in South Wales to coming to city life of West Yorkshire with mm. all towns and cities around. And I was that child that was getting into clubs at 15, 16 and pubs. And one minute I'd be in West Yorkshire, the next minute I'd be in Newcastle and waking up and thinking, how the hell did I get here? So I had done that. By the time I got to 21, I've, I'd done it. And when my mates were asking me, do you want to go out? I was like, no, I've done it. I don't want I really don't want to do it. So using my skills from working in the, scare, in the care sector, I, um, I knew that there was just that something missing in my life. And I thought, what, what is missing? So I left working with the elderly and I went to work for a school, um, a, a residential school for children and adults with an array of, of quite profound complex needs. Mm. And I knew instantly from walking in that door, I knew instantly I had found my niche as to where and where I fitted, if you like, within my working career. And I, I've been worked my way up the ladder there slightly and, and, and I just had this urge, this, this urge, and I, I saw this, this banner that said, uh, sorry, a flyer, should I say, and it said, could you adopt? That's all it said, and there were some, some, some pictures of children, can you adopt? And I thought, oh, I'd love to do that. I'd love to do that. And I thought, if I'm going to do this, then using my skills and my knowledge that I built up, let's take on a child that is possibly going to be classed as one of the hardest child to place, which is a child with disabilities. Yeah. So you see, for me, I'm a, parenting is much more than being biologically linked to a child. For some people, it means the world. To me, parenting is everything else than being blood linked to your child. Okay. So I'm there when my child 
children are poorly, mind their football matches, dance routines, doing their hair because they can't quite get it right. You know, when they're ill, I'm the one that's there sitting up all night. All these elements that make you a parent and that makes you have that pride and that, that ability to say my children without saying, oh, by the way, I'm biologically linked. Yeah. Does that make sense? But, yeah, it does. But the thing is, I think a lot of people would be scared and intimidated and unsure about taking on children with special needs, you know, with physical and mental difficulties. It's a lot of Absolutely. responsibility, isn't it? So what made you confident do it? I mean, it must be terrible. So, so it, was, it was purely and simply that I worked within this care sector and I loved every minute of it and I had this ability to see the child and not the disability and that yeah. for some people is very 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 hard doesn't make you doesn't make you weak doesn't make you weak it doesn't make you any less of anyone else it just some people have it and some people don't fortunately <laughs> I had it and I thought if I'm going to do this I want it to be about offering a child who is less likely to get a forever home than that of your blonde-haired, blue-eyed child. Well, that's it. I mean, it's still like that, isn't it? I'm sure. I mean, the the agencies must have ripped your arm off going, oh, wow, we're finding it really hard to place these kids and here's someone that's willing to take them because, you know, most... Not, not, couples... not, not, not at the beginning. Not no, really? Beginning. So I made that initial phone call uh, and, yes, it was fantastic. You sound great. You sound like the perfect candidate. But I was 21. And even though the law states you can be a 21, you can be 21 to adopt, mm -hmm. how many, hand on heart, do you know how many 21-year-old people that go forward to adopt? None. Especially from the LGBTQ plus community. Well, was that an issue as well? I mean, I know it was um, well, it wasn't not, it was it, it was legal, but did, did you come across any difficulties? Were people thinking, God, he's only 21 and he's a gay man? Now, you wouldn't have what I no. experienced. No. Going back all them years ago, it wasn't, it was, there was no prejudice, there was nothing, none of that. It was purely and simply, okay, you're 21, why aren't you out on the gay scene? Why aren't you, tell us why. We yeah. need to know why. If this is going to work, tell us, you know, from the nitty gritty, tell us. Which is you my know? first question to you as well. So I was falling into the stereotypes, like a 21 year old gay man, of course they want to go out partying, but not in yeah, your case. Yeah. So once they sort of, the thing is, I'm going right back, I grew up within a religious background, my dad being a vicar, um, you know, very much involved in the church. And so it didn't come to much surprise to people that I was doing this to friends and family. Hmm. But it was about proving to social services that I was this person that I had, a, I had a, an old head on my shoulders and that I had experienced life. OK, only several years, a couple of years before, but I am ready to settle down and to commit to a child, you know. Hmm. And it became quite apparent that actually I was this person and that I, you know, everything that was, any task that was set to me along the, the, along the path. I mean, now, my goodness, the, the, the time scale back then is nothing to what it is now. I mean, you know, nine months assessment process to be in match now, you know, is that of a pregnancy? Back then, we're talking three years, you know, from really? start to finish. You know what I mean? I've seen such a switch and such a change 
it's it's quite refreshing actually which is better so, for the children obviously well yeah ultimately yes because it's less time in you know in care and it's you know about you know settling with a family etc mm. but you know as 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 my journey went on right at the beginning i got to that ultimate day if you like which is called adoption panel which is when you go and sit in front of um lots of professionals uh, i'm actually an adoption panel member myself and i thoroughly enjoy it and you ultimately present your case to panel along with your social worker unfortunately back then my very first adoption i didn't get a unanimous yes but i didn't get a no i got what's called a split decision mm. so ultimately you are only there as a panel member to give a recommendation you're not there to give a nailed on yes or a nailed on no. You're there to give a recommendation. It's the ADM, the agency decision maker, that ultimately ratifies that decision. So luckily, the ADM overruled panel and said I would be an asset to any child's life. So that there along came along Jack, my first child who um, has autism. And Jack was two when he moved home, and he was described to me as a quirky child. Okay, what does that mean? Well, it was said that he possibly had autism, but he's currently going through the assessment, and obviously this takes time, and, you know, at the moment he just needs channeling, if you like. So he was quickly identified, and he was quickly, you know, diagnosed with autism, and he... Yeah, he just went from strength to strength. And I can remember doing the introductions with him. And that was the most surreal moment I can honestly say in my life. Oh, go on, talk us through meeting Jack and bring him home for the first time. I had, don't forget, I had, although I had all this desire inside me to become a parent, I'd never been called daddy, never. And I had never had to say to someone, this is my son, right? (gasps) So... I walked through the doors of his foster carers, which can I have is now his, is now his godmother and we are the best friends and she's, she's my cruising partner. Uh, and we go once a year, once a year we go cruising and I let my hair down and she right. lets her down and we Proper. have a wonderful, wonderful time. Proper cruising on the seas, you mean then, yeah. <laughs> yes, cruising on the seas. <laughs> and um, so uh, I, I opened, I, she opened the door to me and I was so nervous I parked up 15 minutes before at the bottom of the street and I was sweating and I was so nervous and I thought oh my god what happens if he doesn't like me what happens if she doesn't like me what happens if if we don't bond what I had all these anxieties so I thought shall I knock shall I knock on the door now 15 minutes early so I knocked on the door and she opened the door she went come in love yeah right yeah coming in and I walked into the back room and he was there watching tv and he looked up at me and he went daddy because the, prepar- the preparation work had started the week before. There was pictures of me around the house and she was talking to him about, about me. Well, my heart just sort of like jumped. And I know it sounds so dramatic to say, but my heart just went, and I just didn't know what to do. I was like, tears started building up. And I thought, this reality, all I ever wanted was to be a dad. I was that little boy. I was that little boy that, that was pushing prams around and had dolls and I had to hide them under my bed because if my dad saw, you know, I would be, what are you doing with them? You should be out playing football type of 
and, and hiding under my bed with dolls brushing their hair and putting nappies on and dresses and I was that child. Were these your sister's sudden, dolls then were they or did you no, just no, buy them yourself? No, I used to save my pocket money up and go and buy them and then bring them home and hide them under my bed. Um, oh my, my mother my mother would have been very accepting, but my father would have been a different kettle of fish. But oh, that was yes. that was what it was like in the 80s. Mm. Um, yep. So finally, my reality of becoming a parent was was there, smack right front in, in my face. And I was like, oh, my God, what do I do? So it's funny because even though I'm... I'm, everyone will tell you I'm so amazing with children. Even before I was a father, I just clammed up. I was like, what do I do? <laughs> and I just, I thought, wow. So it just, that day was the best possible day of my life. And, and I know that I've done it, you know, five times after that, but I kind of got used. I was a tried and tested parent by this point. So it was, yeah, we, we played and we went for walks and we got to know each other and all the anxiety that his foster carer had because of his, his needs and, he, and the length of time that he had been with her sort of went, you know, we built up this fantastic relationship. We were going shopping together with, 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 with Jack and, oh, it was just amazing. And the day came that it's called Moving Home Day mm-hmm. and emotions are high, so it is done very quickly. So all that time that you've spent building up a relationship with a foster carer comes to what feels like an abrupt end, but it it isn't. It's the beginning of something very special. But on the day of move day, you literally go, and by the time that happens, you have got all his stuff at home. So it's just you pull up, you go in, you collect, you go. There's no hellos, kisses, goodbyes, you go. Oh, very simple, and it, and it sounds very organised, but I'm guessing the emotions, again, were running high. Yeah, and the reason, the reason it's done that way is because then your child doesn't pick up on emotions and anxieties, and, you know, it's just an exciting day, you know? Even though you're driving home, and I was looking in that mirror, and I could see him in his car seat, and he'd fallen asleep, and I'm driving over the moors, and I'm thinking, oh, my God, I am a father. and I just, it was silent in the car. Just thank God he was asleep. Complete silence. And I'm thinking, right, reality. This is it. There's you and a little boy and your life starts now and his life is starting now. And yeah, and that was it. I only ever wanted one child, can I add? I'm guessing all those anxieties eventually faded away and you've got an incredible bond, right? This is right. That's exactly what it was. And so as as two years passed and I was a tried and tested father, I thought, wouldn't it be nice to have a girl? And the beauty of adoption is you can choose. <laughs> so I thought, wouldn't it be wonderful to have a girl? So I applied to, to adopt a little girl and again, a little girl with a need, should we say. Um, mm. Not like calling it a disability, I call it a need. So, you know, in that two years, I saw a a huge shift, a massive shift, you know, from start to finish. We're talking eight months, whereas previous years, it was three years. We're talking eight months from start to finish. And uh, that was a very uh, unique story in itself. Um, So I got told by my local authority at the time, unfortunately, Ben, we don't have any little girls that have a need uh, at this present moment so there could be some time that you'll be you'll be waiting well 
that's absolutely fine. I said, you know, I've, I've, I've got one child. I've got my hands full, if you like. Um, so, you know, if I have to wait, I'll wait. So she said, in the meantime, then, I'd like you to go to what's called an exchange date, uh, which is where it's usually held at some sort of football ground. And lots of adopters are invited. And they are, I'm going to try and say this, as, and I will explain. It sort of sounds like a market, but it, it, it really yeah. isn't. Yeah. So there's lots of stalls from different local authorities that prof that have profiles of children. Okay. And they are they are some of the children that are hardest to place. So be that children with a recognised disability, mm -hmm. large sibling groups, children from a different ethnicity yeah. or different cultural backgrounds. And they can sometimes be the hardest to place children and also older children. So to, to listeners listening to this may think, oh my goodness, that sounds like a market. Can I buy a child? It isn't like that. It's done very confidentially and sensitively. You have to be invited. You have to be an approved adopter. And you have to wait. You know, it's done very professionally. Cool. So, of course, you know, I go in. Hello, my name's Ben, ben Carpenter. Uh, I'm looking for a little girl with a disability. Um, well, of course, I had a profile. I had profiles like stacks of, of, of profiles, which we could, was, was so daunting. So off I went and had a little coffee and, and a little chill and, and, and sort of looking through these profiles, which you can take home. You, you're allowed to take home. Uh, and so I was looking through these profiles and I have to say that there were a couple that stood out, but something just didn't feel right. And I kind of felt deflated, really. I, I should have left. I should, I, when I was thinking this at the very moment, I, I thought I would have been thinking, oh my goodness me, one of these are going to be my daughter. And I just didn't feel it. I felt quite deflated. And as I was leaving, I noticed that there was one stall that, uh, that, that I, I must have missed. And I went over and they were just packing up. And I says, oh, hello, my name's Ben Carpenter. And I'd like a little girl with disability. And she went, oh, wow. She says, oh my goodness. She says, We've got a little girl. Oh, she'd be wonderful with you. She said, um, oh, I don't think I've got any profiles left. They've all been taken. She went, I tell you what, I have the hard copy. So I took the hard copy. And this sounds so dramatic when I say it, but I still get goosebumps when I talk about it. She passed over this profile and I saw these piercing blue eyes. And it said, my name is Ruby. Could you be my parent? And I just felt this gush of, oh God, I don't know what to call it, just this emotion. And I, I, I thought, this is my daughter. This is my daughter. And you could visually see that she had quite complex needs. And I thought, this is my daughter. So I juggled all these profiles up and I went home and I said to my mother, um, have a look through these, what do you think? And she looked through them all. She spent hours looking through them all, reading and she passed me this profile and she said, that's your daughter. I didn't say anything to her, didn't say any of how I felt. And she said, that's your daughter. And I went, why, why do you say that, Mum? And she said, I don't know. That's your daughter. And it was Ruby. And I said to her, Mum, I have to tell you this. I, I, that is exactly how I felt. So I made a phone call to the social worker. She was like, oh my goodness, this is wonderful. Um, can I come and see you tomorrow? Not 24 hours after, I thought, oh my goodness, yeah, I thought, yeah, that's great. So she came and she 
said, wow, I love your house. I love everything you offer. I love everything you stand for. To me, it is the perfect match. However, I have to tell you, birth mum has just given birth and there is a sibling. Would you consider ah. a sibling? And I said, I think at this stage, it would be very selfish of me to say yes, because Ruby has quite significant needs. At the time, she was wheelchair. She was in a wheelchair. She was tube fed. She was there was massive uncertainties as to her eyesight. She still she she's registered as blind. She had severe scoliosis. She was missing the bones in her radius bones in her arms. Oh. She was a very complex little girl. And I later found out whilst doing the introductions that um, she had massive anxieties and uh, separation issues and there were a lot going on here and all I said was I'm not going to say no and I'm not going to say yes let's wait for her court proceedings to go ahead and if it is adoption if the courts say that you know it, adoption is the way forward let's let's revisit it but let's spend these six months whilst the assessment's going on to focus on Ruby. And when that six month came around, it was very evident that it was, wouldn't have worked, Emma. It wouldn't have worked. You know, it was, there was, she had a lot of issues. Uh, I was just going through, you know, getting her feeds right. If you give her too much, she'd be sick. If you give her too little, she'd be hungry. It was getting that balance. There was a lot going on here whilst juggling, yeah. whilst juggling the commitment with Jack, you know? And another month, uh, no, another three months went by and something clicked, something clicked. Ruby turned a corner, albeit with her complex needs, she turned a corner and I rang up and I said, is her sister still available? Is she still looking for a family? And they went, actually, Ben, yes, she is. And she, I said, right, would you like to come and see me? I think... I think we're at a time, if it's done sensitively, slowly and sensitively, that we could look at this. So, yeah, along came Lily. So you already had two children with complex needs and then you took on a baby. Yeah, who at that point I was told she hasn't passed her hearing test and she tests have proven that she has been born with no auditory nerves and she is profoundly deaf and that she is part of the deaf community. So I was like, right, that's fine. Oh, and by the way, she has the same eye condition as her sister, so she's also registered as severely sight-impaired. So I was like, right, okay, we'll deal with this. So I sort of brushed up on my BSL sign language, and um, yeah, and along came Lily. Oh, my God. And then you still kept going and still wanted to have more children. I mean, I'm well, guessing I, I, mean, I could I talk did, to you all day. But yeah, I thought I took, a, I took a bit of a break there because I sort of went from only out wanting one child, all of a sudden in two years having three children. Yeah. Um, yeah. And three children very of similar ages as well, you yeah. know. And, and I guess it's been it's been quite a long journey, hasn't it? Because you started this when you were 21 and you're, what, 37? <clears throat> Sorry, I probably shouldn't say. 37. So it was a, I started when I was 20. I started when I was 21, but the, obviously there was a three-year process, so I was 23 the time Jack moved home, you know, 25 when Ruby came home, you know, so there was, yeah, so it was a process. And I, I took a, 
I took a bit of a break and I enjoyed my children and we moved as well um, uh, to a bigger house, obviously. And, um, you know, I, I really invested enjoying my children and seeing them thrive and, and, and seeing, you know, like, for instance, Lily profoundly deaf. It was so wonderful to see, you know, her reaching her signing targets, you know, when she the first thing she said to me was she signed Daddy, Daddy I love, you know. And, and that was very, very, very magical and very special, you know, and, and the very fact that I taught her that, I taught her the word, that how to sign daddy and love and family and and adoption and look after, keep safe and, and stuff. You know, I taught her these words. And she and put now, them all together and told her it. Yeah, yeah and, and now she's this nine-year-old independent little girl who... Well, I say little, she's nine going on 19, she's a diva. She is like, yeah, up there. She's like, her signing is like brilliant. She goes to a deaf school. She's fantastic, you know? So let's fast forward to who you've got in your household today then, because you've got uh, quite a brood now, haven't you? So, yeah, so then, you know, I, I went on to, I wanted to, and I thought, so this even numbers out. So I thought, that's how this specifically go for a boy. And so I'd have two boys, two girls. And so I specifically asked to, if I could adopt a little boy with Down syndrome, I've always had a passion to care for a child with Down syndrome and an adult. Um, and uh, I had a phone call uh, to say a little boy had been relinquished uh, for adoption. Um, unfortunately, um, his parents felt they couldn't cope with disability, so gave him up as a newborn baby. And um, yeah, so along came Joseph. Joseph is of Chinese heritage. And he is just a wonderful, you know, quirky, funny little boy who is now six. And then I was asked um, if I was approached by a local authority, if I would consider taking a little boy who again had been relinquished uh, for adoption. And he was of Romanian heritage. By this time, uh, you were the go to, weren't you? For um, children Yeah, so by this age, point, yeah. I had mm. four children, four children. And so I thought, yeah, why not? Let's, let's go for this. You know, what's what what's one more <laughs> <laughs> in a house full <laughs> yeah and, and teddy bless him i had uh, quite significant needs and sadly in 2019 teddy passed away quite suddenly and unexpectedly and it was a it was a huge shock and it was something that i found myself have, that no parent should ever have to do i mm. you know i sadly had to try and resuscitate resuscitate him i found him that he passed away in his special chair and um, yeah, it all turned out from results that he passed away of sepsis, and it was yeah, and it was his disability was not the factor of why he died, and it was yeah, it was a very emotional time um, for us all, and, and and we quickly, we 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 all quickly accepted Teddy's death. It was the, it was the aftermath of it all, and and trying to explain to my my children that their brother is not coming back because for them, the hardest part was giving their brother a kiss like they did every morning to go to school and then coming home to police cars here, ambulances, you know, where's, where's my daddy? And I was in hospital, you know, grieving for a little boy, for my son, and then having to come home. And luckily my mother had done the most of that work. And, you know, I, I, I had to come home and it was all that. 
And still now, every now and then, a little, you know, a letter will come through the post or I'll find a baby grow somewhere or a little one of his, you know, his, 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 his cloths that he used to have next to his face. But you know what? We always focus on the, not about the, 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 the amount of time he had, which was very little on this earth, about what he had and what we gave him as a family, which was a non-clinical life. A wonderful, you know, so enriched, you know, we love you for who you are and not what, you know, what, what you had. So, and yeah. he'll always be with you and you've still got photos of him around the house, I've read, haven't you? Always, and he's buried within our little village here and we go down as a family and it was his birthday, actually, uh, the other day. So we went down and put flowers on his grave and it's a, a wonderful way for the a place where the children can go and they can visually see where he is you know yeah. and so then um I, I sort of you know we, we'd done our grieving and I was contacted by actually the same local authority uh, the same social worker as Teddy and said I have a little boy who has suffered some brain injuries and um would you consider it and I just said you know let, let me think about it and along came Louis. <laughs> and Louis had suffered quite a serious uh, head trauma. And unfortunately, he was born, a, I don't like using the word normal, he was born quite a perfectly normal child. And at eight months old, sadly, it's taken his mobility, his eyesight, and he has quite significant brain damage. Mm. Um, but the little boy that moved home, which was, ooh, I've got the patience of a saint, Emma. You um, must have, to be honest. <laughs> you must let a lot of um, bleep fly, to be honest. At it's one stage, go on. At one stage, I thought, what have I done here? Because mm-hmm. I have never known a child cry as much and scream. And mm-hmm. um, yeah, it was a big thing. And now he is just oh, a wonderful, happy, contented, quirky little boy who knows his own mind and knows what he wants and he's yeah he's wonderful and yes he does have to be hoisted and he has to have specialist bath uh, baths and we have a lift fitted in the house because he's a full-time wheelchair user and he all the children have quite significant needs but I've just learned to deal with that and we've learned to all appreciate each other. I literally don't know how you find the time on the energy or how there are enough hours in the day to do all the caring and looking after that you must do. And in fact, I've got to tell you what, what he said to me just before the interview. I said, have you got any headphones, Ben? And he said, uh, well, I did have, but they were thrown down the toilet by one of my children. I hope I'm not, I'm not going to name and shame, Ben, but in this that just gives an insight into what your life is like, really. You know, you've got a house yeah. filled with children. What, what is it like on a day-to-day basis? Most people would say, everyone's going to be thinking, God, his house must be crazy. His house must be just manic. And it really, really isn't. Every, every person that walks through my door, if I've had a pound for every time I say it, I wouldn't be fundraising for a sensory room. Yeah. Um, they'll say, oh my God, Ben, your house is so chilled and so calm and structured and oozes, and they use this word, oozes love. And I, I, I actually pride myself on that. And and we've just had a, an extension done that was kindly done by by our local authority, our council, by the home adaptations team. And I've created each room as is created, personalised for 
each of my children's personalities. So, for instance, you know, graffiti on one wall or fairies on the other or butterflies. Or, and that's you your know, bedroom. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, very much so. No, mine's, not, mine's uh, gold and, uh, and green. Um, but every, and I've created this environment for the children where it's a happy, safe and nurturing environment where they can flourish and thrive in and everyone everyone comments on that and you know every time a social worker comes to the house be it you know because I'm, I'm just going through the the process of applying to become a foster carer as well and every every social what? Worker comes to hang house, on a minute you yeah. haven't got any more time in the day how can you be a foster carer as well you're going to get more kids in yeah, I mean, this is obviously on a fostering basis, not an adoption basis. And I have a really good structure and routine in my house. So, for instance, this morning, um, the alarm goes off at half past six and the children get up and we have baths or showers, we wash hairs and stuff. And and then they go downstairs and they have the breakfast and then school transfer. So I've, I've helped myself massively by applying for things that are out there that not everyone knows. So for instance, I apply for school transport for each of the children. So the buses and the taxis turn up and then they all go off to school and then they come back about half past right. four. So they leave by half past eight and they're back at half past four, which would then, that frees me up to do things within the house. I also have a wonderful friend who's my housekeeper, who on a Monday and a Friday cleans the house for me and she's wonderful and she, I then apply for what's called direct payment, which allows you to apply, employ a carer for a certain amount of hours for each of the children. So I thought, who better than my really close friend, Jeanette, who works 25 hours a week for me, and she is the children's godmother, and they know her as Auntie Netnet, and Brilliant. she does some care, and she absolutely adores the children. And then my housekeeper, Nikki, said, is there any more hours? I said, well, actually, yes, there's nine hours going if you want it. So she does some care as well. So I have that element. So from half past eight to half past four in the night, that's the time there I would use for a foster child to maybe, you know, go take to um, contact, for contact with the parents and, you know, anything else that, that, that may, that I use for being a foster carer, skills to use for foster carer. So, yeah, that's, that's my life in half an hour. And, and I, I know it's to everyone might be thinking, oh, come on, how do you do it? I just do. And I, I have a wonderful structure and routine. And can I add not convey about care? Each and every one of the children have individual time and spent with them. Like, for instance, my daughter said to me this morning, Ruby said, can we read? Um, the monster book tonight which is a fantastic sensory book you get monster gloves and it's called oh. the tickle tickle monster and you've got that sounds you know, awesome so i'll spend half an hour with her whilst you know jack is you'll come on from school he's he's now 14 and he's like shower mad i have to shower i have to shower so he'll come off from school the first thing he does get in the shower for half an hour you know Lily will want to go out onto the swings in the garden, uh, you know, whereas Joseph will come in and he will want to watch his TV. So that will allow me to have some cuddle times and story times with Lily, you know. Well, and so, it's, it's, it's great that you've got these other, um, well, women essentially helping you out, really, which yeah. is fantastic. Because my, yeah. my worry would be, how on earth are you doing all this as a single person? And, and that must have been some of the concern at the beginning, I guess, from, from friends, family. Yes. 
you know, why why do this as a single person? Because that's you know making it making it difficult, isn't it? Did yeah. you never consider? Oh, I'll wait until I've got a partner and. Well, the thing is that's just another story in itself that could quite possibly take half an hour so I'll try and <laughs> I'll try and skim it down but right at the beginning of my assessment all them years ago I had a very strict social worker uh, who actually I bumped into not so long ago and I just I just had to, to, to tell her this and um, she actually came to an adoption a virtual adoption panel that I was sitting on and she sort of looked and she could, she was looking on the screen like to say, I know this man. So I introduced myself and she went, oh my God, Ben, how are you? I've read about you. You've gone on to, to adopt all these children. And she said, we must get in contact. She said something to me that really stood out. And she asked me about relationships all them years ago. And for me, Emma, I am happy being a single dad. I'm happy. I, I, to be quite honest with you, I love nothing more than getting into the bed on a night, watching a box set with a cup of tea and a slice of cake. It is fantastic. I love it. I mean, you're surrounded by love, aren't you? So, you know, but a lot of people still say, do you not want a boyfriend? Well, I've never had that desire. I've never Mm. had that desire. So back all them years ago, I said, oh, I don't want a relationship. No, I don't want a relationship. Thank you very much. I'm happy. I'll have a cup of tea and a slice of cake. Thank you very much. No, not, not for me. And she, as sharp and as, and as abrupt as this, she said, what a ridiculous thing to say. And that shows, that shows immaturity. And I was like, why? Why? She says, who are you to say that Mr. Writing around that corner, I ain't going to come and sweep you off your feet and you're absolutely emerged in love. Mm. What I'm asking you is, if that was to happen, how would you introduce this partner to a child? Well, let's face it, Emma. If a relationship was to ever happen, that person's going to have to be extremely like-minded to myself and love have, kids. <laughs> they're going to have to love kids a lot, aren't they? And they're going to have yeah. to deal and with not having to, much of your time. And it's going to have to be someone that is extremely like-minded to myself, that mm. is passionate with children and children with disabilities. Mm. So it's very niche, isn't it? It's a very niche but, I know, mean, never say never, Ben. They could be out and there. That is how I have gone on my journey. Mm. I took a little piece of what that social worker told me all them years ago, and I've always adapted it. So now I say, I don't say, oh, no, it's not for me. I don't want relationship. I always say, do you know what? I'm happy being a single dad at the moment, but never say never. Mm. You know, you never know what's around the corner. Never say never. So you're not looking, but if Mr. Wright came along, you wouldn't say no if they were the right person and very good with lots of children. Exactly. There we go. Ah. <laughs> well, Ben, I literally could talk to you all day, but I do really want to find out about this sensory room that you're hoping to build your children. I've only been in one yeah. once, I think. I can't remember where it was in some community centre. Um, but yeah. for people that don't really know what a sensory room is, just explain a little bit about... Yeah, so a sensory room is, you know, it's a room where a child with an additional need can just ground themselves. So it intends of bubble lamps, um, you know, rope lights, um, a musical bed, so there's a big water bed, musical bed, um, star carp, star-like carpets. It's a very dark room. It's a very chilled, peaceful, quiet room. Mm. But of course, everything that has disabled written on it costs an absolute arm and a leg. Yep. So I've had a company in. They have um, drawn up a design which costs in excess of fifteen thousand pounds. That was three years ago. Um, you know. 
everything's gone up. The price of everything has just rocketed. So a friend of mine set up a Just Giving page um, and people have been, oh my goodness, so generous. And I've taken our story and my children and me to heart and kindly donated. So I'm kind of hoping if any of your listeners would kindly like to donate, you check it out. I'm sure you can put a link somewhere, Emma. I um, certainly can. And I'm sure our yeah. listeners will, because, you know, having listened to your story, I'd like to donate myself because you are an incredible dad. I feel like we should get something for you as well, not just for your kids, because what Thank you've you given those much. children is just something else. I mean, you talk about changing lives. You're a real like pride, pride hero, I think, because you've just changed Thank the lives you. of so many young people. The thing is, Emma, I, I have been recognised and I have won awards and I have been honoured and stuff. And, and, it's wonderful and it's so lovely you know I've got awards for inspirational individual I've got a BCA honour from the government for, for what wow. I've done and stuff and it's wonderful of course it is and I've got medals and, and, and awards and, and stuff and they are wonderful but ultimately it's not why I've done it I've done it to raise awareness for adoption and that anyone from any walks of life can adopt. It doesn't matter if you're from the LGBTQ plus community. It doesn't matter if you don't own a home and you rent or you live with your mum or you live with your dad or your grandma or your auntie, auntie Maggie. It doesn't matter. Anyone from any walks of life can adopt because we need adopters, different types of adopters for the different types of children that we've got, be that people from the Asian community, we have Asian children, and it's lovely to get that cultural match where we can. And it's just raising awareness for that. And ultimately, I just wanted to be a dad and I fulfilled my dream in doing that. Well, you've proven that it is doable and it's doable as a single gay man. What would you say to anyone listening to this thinking, oh, but I'll never be as good as Ben and um, I'd really like to adopt and I'm, I'm not sure about it. Go on, what would you say to them? I, I, I'm not brilliant, Emma. I've, I have my faults like anyone else. Everyone parents in different, in different ways. Mm. If you are considering adoption, you as a single person or you and your partner are considering adoption, make them first steps. It is the most rewarding, satisfying experience and journey you will ever embark on. And the beauty is about adoption is that journey never ends you are only adding to an adoptive child's life you are constantly adding 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 all that child's life it is come forward make them first initial steps contact your local age your local council or adoption agency go along a lot of it at the moment because of covid is virtual go along to an information event find out all about adoption you're not committing yourselves find out all about adoption Will it work for you? Will it work for your, your, your lifestyle? You know, how will this impact? And then make a formal application. And you're, you not, and you're not on your own, is there? there? There is a lot of support out there from all the different agencies. Oh, yeah. amazing support. Training, the um, adoption uh, training is, well, it's marvellous. It's come on so much from you know all them years ago when I did it like they do virtual reality uh, training where you are that child you are living in where this environment of where this child has come from you are oh seeing you it is very very intense but 
puts your mind in a different place to where you thought you could never go. And you, it's wonderful. It really is. It can be challenging. It has its ups. And it, I, you know, I well, can't sure. sugarcoat that. Yeah. I can't, I can't sugarcoat. It has its downsides. Be and prepared course, to have your headphones thrown down the toilet. But that is parenting. <laughs> yeah, parenting. Yeah. It doesn't matter if it's birth, adoption. However, that is parenting. Yeah. Right, listen, Ben, before you go, let's remind people about this sensory room. What would it mean to your kids to have a sensory room in the house? Oh, it, everything. Ev- absolutely the world. It would, it, it's, it would create a space for them to, to thrive and flourish that little bit more. And... You know, if who knows if if any money is spare or lingering or, or that are, that's above, how wonderful it would it be to extend that and maybe take them on a lifetime holiday, um, you know, maybe Disneyland or something where you know that inclusive that 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 therapy continues wider. Who knows? But every little penny that is donated for the sensory room, anything extra will hundred percent go on the children. Fantastic. And remind us where we can give them, where we can... Uh, so you can, if you just type my name, Benjamin Carpenter, into Google, there'll be a list of things that I've done over the year. And it will take you a link if you put Benjamin Carpenter, just give in, it'll... There's a, there's a big picture of us, you can't miss us. <laughs> OK, Benjamin Carpenter, just giving. We'll post a link as well, so um, hopefully Wonderful. we can find it. Well, thank you very much for having me. Oh, thank you for listening, everyone. Oh, you're an absolute gem. And I can only see one room of your house in uh, on this Zoom call, but it does look very clean and tidy and not like you've got like hundreds of kids running around messing it up. So amazing work, Ben. <laughs> thank you very much, Emma. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Time now to meet Jane Ozan, a formidable campaigner against so-called gay conversion therapy. Now, she knows all about it. Why? She even put herself through it. So she really knows firsthand just how damaging it can be. She's an evangelical Christian who made it to the very top of the church, actually. She was part of the Archbishop's Council. And she told me she took a long, long time to accept that she was actually a gay woman. Well, I must admit, I grew up in Guernsey in the Channel Islands in quite a sheltered, conservative um, place. And I didn't know, I think I'm of that age group, I didn't even know that women really could be gay. I mean, I knew that men, there was a few sort of flamboyant men who were often the butt of jokes, sadly, in the media. But, you know, Mm. it it was just not even on my radar and being in a very Christian environment, too. So it wasn't until I was in my 20s, I was actually working in Paris uh, with Kimberly Clark. And uh, I had this woman I was working with who was one of the reasons I'd moved to Paris. I was just enthralled by her. I loved her to bits. I loved spending time with her. You know, we worked together. We went out for meals together. We did everything together. And it was her best friend who took me out for dinner one day and looked at me and said, Jane, when are you going to admit to yourself and everybody else that you're madly in love with Elaine? (gasps) And do you know what? You know, my, I remember I was so shocked I knocked this very expensive bottle of red wine all over this white <laughs> tablecloth. That's all I remember. I remember thinking, oh, my God, she's absolutely right. And in a sense, she had opened, excuse the phrase, she'd opened Pandora's box. And out came this sort of huge, for me, um, massive uh, secret and history. Uh, and, and, and Well, yeah, massive secret and problem, because as a, a Christian woman, the last thing I could possibly be was gay, was lesbian, was someone who would be attracted to women. That was an absolute abomination to me. And I 
Yeah, I thought it was a one-off. I thought it was the madness of living in Paris, but it happened again when I was in Russia, it happened again in Australia, and I began to realize I had this, for me, horrendous um, dilemma that the one thing I wanted in life was to love and be loved, but the source of that love was not something that I believe God would approve of and nobody around me either would. And why were you believing this? You must have been in a, a very specific set of circumstances. I mean, what, what era are we talking about? Because sometimes that can affect it. What decade are we talking? Absolutely. It was the uh, mid-90s. So um, All right. I'm, I'm in my mid-50s now. Mm-hmm. And um, I, yeah, I, I suppose all my friends, all my immediate contact circle were what we call evangelical Christians. They were from a very devout Christian background it's something I'd chosen it's not something if you like I was forced through in fact my parents were quite concerned um, about my fervency in the 80s they actually stopped me going to church because they were you know that concerned and, really and course, oh yeah that's no, unusual isn't it <laughs> well I mean I well going to a certain type of church because it was what we call a charismatic church so there was a lot of hands in the air and a lot of you know real passion going but, on but what drew you to that then because you know most people are brought into religion by their families but you as I said you went to and you found it did you just you mm. saw the light at some point or what happened well, yes I mean I I um I, to be fair my parents are Christian and we went to the good old Anglican and then Methodist church but that was all sort of you know nice and proper and but this for me was really real my faith and I think that's what people my faith is really real I really I feel um, that God is a, a very present uh, force in my life. I, I saw my prayers um, answered. I saw people change. For me, the sense of um, God being with me, about I talk about the love of God, was something really real and powerful in my life. And um, I remember, you know, the first person I actually dared to talk to about all this was actually my psychiatrist. When we'll get onto this, I was in hospital and then I had a breakdown. And she just looked at me and said, well, change your faith. And I remember looking at her and thinking, you really don't get this because mm-hmm. I can no longer change my faith as I could change my, um, well, my, you know, my sexuality my or my sexuality. Yes. yes, exactly. So, but the interesting thing is, if I'm really honest, is that um, I, I don't suppose I'd ever heard a sermon on this. I've never really heard any teaching. It's just that it was a deep norm in our society that you grow up fell in love, got married to someone of the opposite sex, had children, and, you know, you played this sort of role that every good Christian woman would play. And in that, those days, you know, the woman was meant to be subservient to the man, which I really hated anyway, so I was pushing mm. the boundaries a little bit. But, um, yeah. Did you get the sense that you were doing something wrong, then, if you were gay? That, that's what you were oh, telling you. That, oh. you know, you would rot in hell, literally. Well, that, that this was not what God wanted for me, that it was not what would be, this was the devil trying to um, knock me off track, that this was all temptation and evil and that this was demonic. I mean, I, you know, um, by the time I, I, I really started grappling with this, um, if we fast forward, I was quite senior in the Church of England. I was on something called the Archbishop's Council. And um, I, I as, a, as a member of the Archbishop's Council, I was a very senior evangelical in the, in, in the country. And, um, you know, there were a lot of people praying for me and thinking that I was the, you know, the one thing that was shaking the Church of England and trying to bring it back to its senses. And they just assumed that mm. this was just something to knock me off track, to, to, to sort of stop me being all that I meant to be. So, yeah. And, and, and also the belief is, sadly, and still is amongst many people, that something must have happened to cause me to be gay. 
that there was a reason why that perhaps you know a relationship with one of my parents or you know sadly I'd had a bit of abuse and you know various things that mm. unfortunately happened and that had to be the reason why I was gay so if we could just heal that if we could just pray into that and have a bit of counseling then I'd be back on the straight and narrow quite literally straight um and that is the root of conversion therapy um which of course I went through many years of you did okay well then we need to come on and talk about this but um first of all can I just quickly go back to the woman in paris did you ever tell her that you loved her i did and it was a complete disaster actually i mean especially given i was working with her um uh, she never really spoke to me again it was heartbreaking <sighs> and um uh and and I, we moved on and I, mm. I i got promoted in um in fact i got promoted into her place which was even worse and um god yeah, no, I, I, I do believe in being honest and transparent. I mean, I didn't actually want anything to happen, but I just thought being honest about it would help. It was a disaster. Um, and I'm afraid that's a bit of a pattern for me, falling for straight women. She, she was. We've all been there, Jane. We've all been there. <laughs> yeah. It's just fascinating to me because, you know, we're almost about the same age, but I spent the 90s hanging out in gay clubs and sleeping with loads of women. And it sounds like we've had very different lives, but it's because of your belief yeah. isn't it it's because of the church that you, we had these very different experiences very different, and, and different upbringings i mean to be yeah. fair you know of course nobody's gay in guernsey you know guernsey oh, no. a nice little you know either if you, if there was a gay scene i certainly didn't know about it and of course people are gay in guernsey and actually guernsey's been brilliant uh, mm. embracing what i'm trying to do now and they've got you know guernsey pride it's completely changed on the island now gosh okay so how did you ever get to the stage where you accepted it and voiced it? Because there was so much going on, wasn't there, with your religion mm. that, um, in fact, it, it led you to, to have serious problems with your mental health, I think, didn't it? It did. Sadly, I had two major spells in hospital uh, with my body literally cracking under the strain. Um, we didn't know what was wrong. So back in the end of the 90s, I was working at the BBC ended up in the Cromwell going through lots of tests, trying to work out why I was in so much physical pain. And it took one of the consultants to come and see me and say, you know, Jane, I think there's something um, going on for you. You're really stressed. You know, yes, you've got a pressurised job, but there's something else. And I think deep down he probably knew. But it would take me another 10 years and another major breakdown. Um, I had a breakdown then, a, a breakdown uh, after 10 years of conversion therapy, where I really put myself through every form I could find. Anybody I knew who would pray for me or, or try and cast demons out of me or had a word for me anything that and I was doing this um as it were but privately um because I I was quite a senior figure now in the Church of England and I didn't so, want anybody to know I was going through all this okay so privately you were telling people I think I might be gay therefore please pray for me and let's get these demons out of me so you weren't doing it openly well I I was quite a public figure within the mm. church I didn't want anybody to know that I was having these uh, problems with my sexuality I thought I'd become unsound people would think less of me and so I was going abroad uh, going on, on on healing courses I was seeking out deliverance ministries and paying them mm. but it was all if you like below the radar which so much of this stuff is mm. but I moved um, I, I came off this thing called the Archbishop's Council I'd set up a few charities I, um, I decided there was a big change coming couldn't quite feel what it was but I moved to Oxford and I was on a course at the university for diplomats it's a very long story why I was on this I've done a lot of work internationally and um, working uh, with international relations and religion and Oxford University had invited me onto this course and on, on day one I walked into the room 
and there was this extraordinary woman from Romania uh, who was became a very dear friend of me. But the mo moment I met her, I realised that all those years of conversion therapy just hadn't worked. And here I was mm -hmm. back at square one. And that triggered, sadly, the second major breakdown, just as I turned 40. And at that point, I really knew I had a very stark cho choice to make. You know, I... I was either going to try and um, discover who I was, you know, at that point, I didn't even know that if I had a relationship with a woman, would that satisfy me? Would that, you know, um, or would it just all become a disaster? And so a all of this had been internal. You hadn't even kissed a woman at this stage. No. no oh, my goodness. It was this internal hell. And that's what people, I think, you know, we talk about people who try and pray the gay away and they think it's just a few minutes of prayer. But what it actually is, is a lifetime of believing who you are is wrong, unacceptable, unlovable and an abomination, if you add the faith part on. So it's, it is a living hell and it's why it causes so much psychological damage to so many people. And uh, I truly thought I was walking away from my faith, which was so, you know, foundational to me. Uh, when I started dating, well, I thought I'll date some women, I'll date some men, I'll see, uh, basically, um, where, where, you know, where I, where I feel most happiest. And I met the most amazing woman, and I fell madly in love. And frankly, even if I didn't tell anybody, it was written all over my face. And, you know, everybody who came into contact with me knew that something significant had happened. But I then mm. had to start that really quite, for me, very difficult journey of coming out because it really did cost me very heavily. Everybody I knew, uh, this was the worst thing possible that I could possibly, Jane Ozan, an evangelical, would be gay. And it's, yeah, it was a disaster. Did you not know anyone else gay within the church then? Because there are plenty of people, aren't there? So, yes, well, this is, again, the churches are very broad thing if you like and those who I knew who were gay were not evangelicals so I thought right. I was the only gay evangelical in the world and the problem with evangelicals is they tend to think that anybody else i.e what we call catholics or liberals or whatever aren't mm. really christian they, are, they, right. they, they they call themselves christian but they're not really so I didn't know anybody in my situation um at all and it was that isolation that had caused so much trouble but luckily, when I did uh, come out, um, I have an amazing story. I was on a plane and uh, we were coming back from, in a sense, what was our honeymoon in, in Vienna for Valentine's Day. And this guy sat next to me with a little collar on showing he was a cleric and I sort of died because I thought he recognised me. And he advised me to read a book and it was a lifeline for me. And in that book, it talked about various people who, who had evangelicals who were gay. And oh. I was able to link up with them. And that became an absolute lifeline for me. What is it in the Bible that makes people think that it's so awful to be gay? I mean, is it has it been misinterpreted? Yes, I do believe it has been uh, completely misinterpreted, both in terms of the translations of, of Greek and Hebrew words. They've been mm. translated by very homophobic people who've taken words which mm. we don't actually have... Um, I don't know how much you want me to go into, but, you know, in Roman times, in, in what we call the New Testament times, um, uh, the Romans had a, a something called, it was awful, pedastry. So an older man would have a young boy, quite literally teenage boy, as his, well, he would be the mentor, but they would have a sexual rela relationship. It was a bit like a slave relationship. And that man was not necessarily gay at all. It was just mm. normal in that context. And so uh, the, Paul, the Apostle Paul, who wrote a lot of the New Testament, would often 
and talk about the abuse that was going on there. And he had words to talk about that. But that's all being translated as homo, uh, if you like, homosexuals and homophobic. Nothing. And it's nothing to do with love. There is nothing in the Bible about the love between two uh, people of the same sex. There is plenty in the Bible about love and about God being yeah. love and about the whole focus of, if you like, Jesus's ministry. The whole point of the Bible is to point towards the message of love. And where there is love, where, there, you know, that love between two people of whatever sex, where that, that love, which is reciprocal and equal, is just, it, as we know, it's, it's life giving, it's transformational. And that's what needs to be celebrated. And there are only six verses in the whole Bible that talk about same sex sex. Um, and that's not an off, in a loving context at all. It's often abusive and they've been mistranslated, misunderstood, misappropriated and used as weapons to cause such pain. Really has, right. isn't it? I mean, that's the thing. The homophobes always focus on the sex, don't they? They never talk about love. It's always about, well, usually it's about male penetration, isn't it? You know, lesbians don't really get a look in, do they? That's no, all it's about. Yeah. It, it is about anal sex. And frankly, if they've got a problem with anal sex, well, then they need to deal with that in the heterosexual world. You know, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's far more. Anyway, it, you're absolutely right. There's this. I think quite um, unhealthy attitude towards sex, often within the, uh, the religious groups, particularly the Christian faith, people feel guilty about it. It's the most beautiful life-giving gift that we've got, yeah. isn't it? And it is the language of love. And I think um, we have to go right back to basics. And you're right, this is part of my mission, if you like, part of my, my, my work is to work with religious organizations around the world to tackle prejudice and discrimination on the yeah. against sexuality and gender um jane we're still sort of halfway through your coming out story really because we've talked about all the struggles and how you were you know trying to reinterpret the verses in the in the bible that were making you so upset about the fact that you were gay how did you eventually turn it around in your own head even and go i can't live like this anymore you know you had 40 years over 40 years of being in the closet I did. I was, um, it was my 40th birthday that was such a watershed for me, if you like. Mm. That's when I, I was in hospital and I had a second breakdown. And as uh, I was saying before the break, I, I really decided I had a choice. I was either, frankly, you know, going to have to take my life because I, I was that low, or I was going to have to embrace who I was and find a way out. But I did think I was walking away from my faith. I think that that's something I'm going to be honest about. Um, mm. But in walking that path, for me, the way I interact with God, the way I pray, the way that things happen in my life were just the same as always. And God, I mean, most of your listeners were thinking, well, yeah, duh, uh, but God was with me. And um, the most extraordinary coincidences would happen. And I met the most extraordinary people who would uh, show me different ways of reading the Bible, of showing me others who had walked my journey. And I realized I was not as alone because it was the isolation also that was causing such trouble. And today, of course, we've got such great groups on Facebook, online, many Christians who are feel unable to come out can still find community, can still talk to people online. And there's, you know, just Google one body, one faith or Christians for LGBT equality. And um, I, I think love is also extremely healing. I mean, the fact that mm. I was madly in love and had come fully alive for the first time in my life, I've just blossomed. And I'm and guessing this love was reciprocated this time, so that would, would have helped yes, and put a smile on the face. Yes, yeah. she was definitely gay. Mind you, she'd only just come out. So, you know, the challenge for two women who were quite 
new to relationships and we're in our 40s and you know it was, it was quite tough and of course we had a lot of people literally praying against us and not there for us if we had difficulties so sadly the relationship had its ups and downs and it yeah. lasted um six seven years but um it was life-giving and more importantly I suppose although I lost a lot of friends and uh, sadly you know for my family it was also quite a shock when they could see how happy I was and when they could see yeah. how alive I was that really challenged people and helped them to journey with me and I've written so you about you did find the book. courage to actually tell your parents then yeah Oh, absolutely. No, they were the first people who needed to know. Um, mm. Telling the church uh, was more difficult. And I um, was very close to an extraordinary gentleman called the Bishop uh, of Liverpool, the former Bishop of Liverpool, um, James Jones, who yeah. helped me uh, write a letter to the archbishops and other senior church leaders. And I told them my story, told them why I'd come out and asked them to keep it private. I was now out of the public square. And much to my surprise, I mean, they did. I thought this would be a huge scandal. Nobody mentioned it at all. And so, and I knew at some stage I would need to re-engage with the church and this whole really toxic debate over sexuality. And that change happened in 2014. A dear friend of mine, Vicky Beeching, who's quite a well-known Christian uh, rock singer, had come I love Vicky Beeching, yeah. She's got a great story as well, hasn't she? Well, she has. And, yeah. you know, and in a sense, sadly, but, you know, the trauma and the journey, very similar mm. stories mm. to mine. And uh, Ruth Hunt, who was the CEO of Stonewall, had been a great support to Vicky. And I, I contacted Ruth and said, look, actually, this is a very similar story for me, too. And Ruth was excellent at A, giving me support, but B, then linking me with other senior um, LGBT Christians. And <laughs> literally within weeks, I was thrown right to the forefront, as I, I knew I probably would be. Um, uh, within this debate and I found myself back in what we call the General Synod which is the church's parliament uh, and leading various challenges. Um, it's not something I sought to do but it, it sort of felt um, inevitable really and I, I must be in the Christmas of 2000 and um, I think it was 14 I had a radio program where this uh, evangelical pastor was basically talking about um, paedophilia and homosexuals mm. in the same breath and I was so angry I was so angry it was Christmas day I remember I was absolutely oh, seething that's a nice so cheery I, conversation on Christmas day isn't it well uh, I was oh I was appalled and on Boxing Day I sat down and I wrote a letter to the archbishops who I knew well I'd worked with over the years and demanded an apology for the way that Chris, um, LGBT people had been vilified and, and called all these sort of names and misunderstood mm. and hurt and I sent it to two good friends of mine um one was the dean of St Paul's Cathedral, the other was dean of St Albans, and asked them what they thought of the letter, and they both came back immediately saying, Jane, it's excellent, I'd like to put my name to this. In fact, I think others would too. And over the Christmas Ooh. period, obviously a very busy time often for, for, for clergy, but we got a, over 100 really senior Anglicans put their name to this letter, and it went to the archbishops at the start of what we call the uh, the primates meeting. This is the, the global meeting of the sort of chiefs yeah. of the church wings. And uh, we got an apology. And that was the first time, really, that a significant number of people from the centre ground of the church, you know, the, the deans and the sub-bishops, and I, I won't go into, but had stood up with those of us in the LGBT community and, and gone, enough, this is, this is outrageous. I remember this getting something. in the news. I didn't realise yeah. this was you. So, yeah, congratulations. That was a big deal, right? 
Thank you. Well, it was a big deal. And I think um, you could feel things were shifting. It's always about timing when you're trying to campaign for change. You know, that mm. obviously many people have gone before who've done great work, but this was about trying to harness the centre ground. When you, when you want an institution to change, when you want a government to change, you have to win that middle ground votes. And that's why I have a, a blog site called Via Media, Middle Ground, which even the Bishop of London and various bishops around the country write for me now because it's the centre ground. And um, we, yeah, various things happened in the Church of England. We, we had a debate in 2017, which was on a paper that the bishops had written, which was ridiculously awful. Uh, I and others thought that this paper needed to be put in the bin and we managed to, to instigate a revolt and for the first time ever the synod rose up and voted this bishop's paper out and that instigated some more change in the church and I, I did feel at that time, and that's why I'm explaining this, that we needed something we could all unite around and that's why I put forward a motion uh, to call for a ban on conversion therapy, to uh, ban conversion therapy within the church, but also to call on the government to it. Because I thought it was a no brainer. I thought most people would say, yep, this is wrong. We need to change. And um, that was in the summer of 2017. We had a unanimous endorsement to that. We had the Archbishop standing you know, up in, in, in the synod chamber, calling on the government to ban it. And that's what started this journey to try and get therapy and you are the best person to campaign for this because you've been through it as you said not just a couple of sessions you've been doing well you know you've been trying conversion therapy for years yes so you know firsthand well exactly and i know the damage and i'm quite a strong resilient person if i'm honest i think you know i've had i've learned how to be but think of a young teenager being forced to go Mm. through this or or feeling they have to go through this you know it is absolutely horrific and the more I do this work obviously many people contact me with their own horrific stories some of them are on my my blog site uh, fearmedia.news of Christians who've just had the most horrendous time of it very abusive Um, and and to be fair you know there are non-Christians too other people of other faiths and indeed of no faiths who who (laughs) their families put them through it or they try and find a way out of being gay and the psychological damage this does is is lasts a lifetime it's huge. Can you talk us through because you actually had an exorcism didn't you? I mean how did many? What was that like? I mean how did that leave you? Well, it's pretty awful. I mean, ultimately, you do it because you think it's the right thing to do. And the people who are praying for you and trying to get this devil out of you are doing it, quote, in love. They do it because they really want to help you. But it is scary. I mean, they're talking to the devil in you. They're trying to tell, tell him to come out. They're encouraging you to cough him up and, you know, Gosh. sometimes to be violently sick. You know, but these sessions can go on for hours. I mean, you know, I remember once I was I was in South Africa and I had a session going on for about four hours and I asked if I could have a little break to go to the bathroom I just needed time out and I looked in the mirror and and literally my eyes uh, eye sockets the skin around my eyes were just red uh, with all the blood vessels that had burst and I had to wear dark glasses for for, for a week I mean I was so embarrassed but it's scary because you truly believe that there is something evil and wrong in you and you can imagine the psychological harm that that does too and um i mean i don't often talk about it but i think it's important that people understand how mm. horrific this is and why therefore we need to send a very clear signal as society that this is wrong it's criminal it must be banned that people who operate trying to do this are are, are hurting and indeed torturing 
that's how the UN sees this, torturing people. So we, we must stop it to protect particularly younger, but also vulnerable adults too. Damaging, and as a fact, it doesn't work. I know there's a few people well, that claim that it have worked and then 20 years down the line, oh, actually, I've hidden the fact that I am still gay after all of that conversion therapy. You know, it just doesn't work. It's not possible for it to work, is it? Well, there are, no. I mean, the truth is, as a Christian, you believe that God can do anything so you could believe that he could, quote, heal you. So there are people who do, you know, a couple of, oh, I thought I was healed. But as I said, mm. when I met that woman, and, you know, it's not just gay people, it is also trans people who, sadly, are, in fact, they are far more likely to be uh, forced or offered this to go through it with far more severe consequences. Often there's a lot of violence, there's a lot of, um, you know, people being starved or, or, or a lot of name calling. It's just horrific. And you're right, there is no evidence that it works. And it, there is plenty of evidence that it causes such deep, significant harm, which leads to self-harm and suicide attempts. So where are we then, Jane, with this? Because I know for a fact that you and others have been campaigning for years. As a journalist, I've been reporting on this for years. When is it actually going to happen? Well, there's a question. So we finally mm. got a commitment from the government in the Queen's speech that they will bring legislation forward in this parliamentary term. And so what Liz Truss, uh, who wasn't going to ban this, I mean, by her own admission, actually, on the record the other day, she said, you know, we, we've always been talking about ending it, but that did not mean banning it. And how the government thought, you know, very proudly that they could end it without actually putting a ban. I have no idea because you've got to set a, you know, a statement and then you have to work with the religious organisations and groups who are advocating this to, to, to educate them about the harm that's going on. Yeah. But um, the, the, what we understand is there will be a yet more consultation in September and uh, that, that we should see some form of legislation next year. But the key thing here is how meaningful is that legislation? Will it cover the key issues? Will it cover religious practices, which is the main form of conversion therapy? Yeah. There's, you know, there's a lot of religious groups pushing to be able to continue doing this, saying, oh, it's only a little bit of prayer. No, it is absolutely horrific and it causes such deep damage. So we can't have any religious exemptions. Uh, we need it to cover all people you know yes of course young lgbt people are the most vulnerable but actually 18 to 24 year olds they've just left home they're at university they're at churches the people they respect and listen to most of their religious leaders and that's when they're most likely to go through this so we need yeah, it's to still, well you know yourself it's still damaging in your 30s and 40s isn't it well exactly however old you are yeah. however old so all ages all yeah. the lesbian gay bisexual transgender community everyone needs to be protected yeah. And what can ordinary LGBT people do, whether they're in the church or not, they're just angry about it? Is there anything that we can all do as individual campaigners? Well, um, do write to your MP. There's been a lot of uh, letter writing, but if you have a story yourself, um, uh, you might not want to say it's for you, you might say you know someone, but tell mm. your story if you possibly feel you can. Talk to your religious leaders, ask them what would they do if a young LGBT person came out to them? And if they say anything other than, oh, I'd, I'd congratulate them and celebrate with them, challenge yeah. them. You know, yeah. this has been a taboo subject for far too long. And if they talk about the need for transformation for prayer, then either report them to the diocese or, or indeed challenge them, because we need to start having these conversations at the grassroots with religious leaders and so that they understand the harm that's going on. Yeah. And lastly, what would your advice be to someone who is 
you know, devoutly religious, and I'm talking all religions here, it doesn't necessarily have to be the Anglican Church or the Evangelical Church, and really struggling with their gender identity or their sexuality, what, what would be your advice? Well, there is so much support now online. And in fact, on my own website, ozan.foundation, we have a support page, uh, the bankconversiontherapy.com uh, website, which I'm very involved in. I, I chair a group where we're all working together, has got a support page of places you can go. The LGBT Foundation of Manchester has a support line. Gallup has too. Uh, but if you're of a religious faith, there are now virtually every faith I'm aware of has an LGBT faith group. So just Google it because you will find a community who will truly understand what you're, what you're facing, what you're going through and can give you support. Do not suffer in silence because it's the isolation and loneliness that can cause so much damage. And I know that because that was my story. Reach out to others. There are others who've been through and they will keep your confidence because they know how, how important that is to you. And most of all, know that you are loved and lovable, that God doesn't make mistakes, that you are wonderfully made and you need to celebrate who you are because love is the most beautiful thing in the earth. And if you don't experience it, wow, you're missing something better than anything else we ever have. Oh, I want to say amen to that, but then I feel really disingenuous because I'm not religious at all. <laughs> okay, you can say amen because that's what this is all about, isn't it? It's the beauty of love and that's yeah. what pride's also about. We, we can stand and show how, how important it is that we love and we're, we're lovable. And what I love is that when you go to pride, you see a lot of um, LGBT inclusive churches taking part in parades now. And Absolutely. I love that. Absolutely. And, and, and thank you for saying that because indeed there are thousands now, you know, the vast majority mm. of churches are changing and indeed across across the religious groups um, you know people want to celebrate who we are and they want to apologize to you know there are people out there who realize the harm I led a big initiative last year the global interfaith commission which started which brought together hundreds of religious leaders from around the world who started to apologize for the harm that their teachings had done and to call for a global ban on conversion therapy and if you want to see the video it's globalinterfaith.lgbt and it's a really powerful message from archbishops from archbishop desmond tutu through to others who signed this declaration big thank you to my guest jane ozan who um I found out about thanks to my friend Hayley, who also works for the Church of England, actually. So thank you for putting me in touch. Now, if you want to find out a bit more about Jane, you can go to her website. is Jane Ozan, that's spelled J-A-Y-N-E-O-Z-A-N-N-E.com. You can get her autobiography there. You can also find a picture of her with the Pope. She even met him and gave him evidence of how harmful conversion therapy is. And if, like me, you're still very angry that it still exists and it's still not been made illegal in this country, um, I suggest maybe giving her a follow on Twitter as well because she's very involved in all the campaigns and all the protesting that's going on. And uh, she's just at Jane Ozan on Twitter. You ready? The Weekend Outing with Emma Goswell. Virgin Radio Pride. Now, have you ever wondered how gay farmers get on? No? Well, perhaps you should. It's not really as simple as having an affair with the seasonal help. If you've uh, watched the film God's Own Country, that's what happens. No, farmers really do struggle with isolation and loneliness, which is why Keith Einson set up the Gay Farmers Helpline. I asked him how it all came about. I was running the agricultural chaplaincy in Cheshire, and that was jogging along nicely, gradually getting uh, bigger and bigger. And then I found out that I was actually working with a couple of gay farmers. And even though I'm gay myself, it had never really crossed my head about there being 
a market for gay farmers with the helpline, etc. Yeah. Um, so, so I thought that, that there's got to be more gay farmers around. It has to be. Yeah, um, so I, I did my research, uh, went to the statistics office for uh, London um, and checked to see how many farmers there were in, in Cheshire. Then working on the usual statistics um, to find out how many were likely to be gay, and I ended up with about 300 and odd gay farmers or farm workers uh, in Cheshire alone. Uh, and I thought that was a tremendous number. So I, I put a, an advert in a farming paper over the Christmas period uh, when farmers were more likely to be reading the paper more thoroughly, shall we say. Mm. Um, and I thought it will take ages for this to take off. Um, I'd already started off, done a, a helpline number, uh, a website, things like that. Um, but it actually took off immediately. The first call came in as soon as the advert hit the, wow. hit the paper. And it's just kept on going ever since. So That, that even, surprised you then by the sounds of it, I guess. It did surprise me, yes. I expected it to take a long while to take off. Uh, I thought it, farmers, gay farmers would be very reluctant um, to say that they were gay, to ring a helpline. And, and I was correct in that sense, but they, they certainly moved faster than I expected. Mm. Was there a sense then, I guess, that you needed this? Because farming in particular is a very isolating career, isn't it? it are gay farmers yeah. feeling really alone and sort of abandoned, really? Very much so. Mm. I mean, farming is is top of the the, the league for suicidal occupations to start Gosh. off with. Then one in four gay men will attempt suicide at some time during their lives. If you put the two statistics together, you you've got a real recipe for disaster there. Um, so that the helpline was certainly needed, and it's been proved it's been needed as well. So you've had a lot of calls from people who are really at their wits end and just feeling suicidal, I'm guessing. There's that sort of thing as well. Um, but a lot of people want information yeah. um, that they want to know who, who, they, who else they could ring, how they could find a partner. In some cases, they want to just talk about the, the situation they find themselves in. Um, so the average caller will be perhaps 50 plus married um because of course the, the 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 pressure to get married and produce an heir in the farming community is enormous right. um so of course if you get married and produce the heir that will sort your sexuality out and everything will be fine then they get to about 50 and find out that it hasn't sorted everything out and everything isn't fine uh, and they can see that the, the children are either away uh, at university, working off the farm, or they're on the farm and taking more responsibility themselves. And he very often thinks, what the hell am I going to do now for the next 20, perhaps 30 years? And was and that your experience as well then, Keith? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'd got no children, but I was married mm. uh, in, in a straight marriage. Um, I didn't come out till I was... Uh, more more mature, shall we say? Okay. Um, <laughs> the right the right side of thirty, I'm going to guess. <laughs> yes, that's right. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. Um, but but then of course it, it also means that I do understand what they're going through. I understand farming. I understand depression because I've I've lived with that all my life. I understand gay, uh, so they know that I know. 
Uh, and that's the important thing when they're talking. The other thing that comes into it very much uh, is that they don't want to hurt her. She's not a bad woman. I just shouldn't have married her. Um, so there's that side. Then there's the practical side. If the farm isn't making money at the moment, how do you afford a divorce? You know, so the, there's all sorts of complications that go with it. Um, is it mainly the older man? And um, so there's not a lot of lesbians that ring your your helpline. Then I'm sure there are gay women or bisexual women or bisexual men that are out, that are out there farming. There's no doubt that there are, but for some reason they don't. The the, the, the female doesn't ring the helpline, and yeah. we don't and we don't know why. We've made absolutely mm -hmm. certain that the website, um, the adverts, etc., are all gender neutral. Okay, but it's the men who ring. That's interesting. Um, and, and what about any? No, that's interesting. Um, and what about anyone in the trans community? There must be um, trans people in the farmer community. Uh, again, there are, and I know of some, but they're yeah. not ringing. The, they're not ringing the helpline. No, that's whether whether they're very happy with their sexuality and don't need the helpline, I don't know. But they're not mm. ringing. Mm. Okay. And what about younger people? Because you know there are a lot of younger people working in farming, but maybe the younger people are, are navigating it better now. You know things have moved on. A lot of younger people might be on the apps and you know finding partners that way or dealing with it that way. I think they are dealing with it better on the whole. Um, but one, interestingly, when I was working, I did a fair number of presentations at agricultural colleges. Oh, yeah. um, and I always got in that, that I understood depression. I always got in that I understood gay. And I was quite surprised how many came to me afterwards and said, well, actually, I'm gay as well, but I haven't told anybody. Um, so I think that there is still that element within the the rural community and the farming community, especially. Well, I think uh, that's that it, the difference. That it isn't acceptable. Yeah, I think that's the difference, isn't it? You're talking about a rural community, and the same. A lot of LGBT people will tend to run away, won't they, and find the big lights in the big city, won't they? So, for example, I yes. lived in Manchester. I have lived in Manchester for years. A lot of people ran away, whether they lived in like Cumbria or Lancashire or anywhere in the country, ran away to Manchester, you know, especially after Queer as Folks. It was seen as like being a gay mecca. And I think it is a yes. harder and a different experience living in rural communities, isn't it? It, it? it is very difficult. And of course, it's a very different sort of lifestyle when you live in a rural community. Mm. So, so some do move to Manchester, London, Birmingham, places like that. And they do settle in all right. But the vast majority are not at home down Canal Street in Manchester. Their, their home is in the country. And of course, to get to places like that on a, a part-time basis, shall we say, is almost impossible. A, a, an ordinary person could go stay overnight if they wanted, go away for the weekend. When you've got a farm to consider, you've got to get back for the feeding. You've got to do the milking before you go out. Um, if you want to go away for the weekend, it's a mammoth task to get cover for the farm, etc., yeah. And of course, if you happen to be married as well, she wants to know where you're going. Of course. Where are you going to, you know, that sort of thing. So the, why, the why are you going off to Canal Street <laughs> on August bank holiday weekend? Yeah, slightly why, suspect. Why, why would anybody want to go to Canal Street on an August bank holiday weekend? I don't know. <laughs> because it's pride. So yeah, a lot of people Oh, know. is that what we're thinking? <laughs> All right. I'll take your word for it. I hate Canal Street. <laughs> oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> or maybe more suited to being a farmer. Um, but it's a very good point, isn't it? I mean, maybe this is why um, farmers are particularly prone to depression as well. Not only are you isolated, you can't get away from it, can you? You can't just have a holiday or a weekend away like other people do. It's it is a 24-7 all-consuming job, yes. isn't it? Yes. If you're working in an office and you're suffering with depression or the pressure of work and that sort of thing, you go home, you'll go for a walk in the countryside, you'll go for a swim, um, anything like that. But you, yeah. you actually move away from the, the, the cause of your depression. Mm. If, you, if you're working on a farm, you walk out of the front door and, you, and the problems are facing you, uh, mm. as, you as you walk out. And of course, if, if you're a married person or even in a gay partnership, your partner is involved with the farm as well. So you can't even sound off about the problems at work to your partner because they're actually involved themselves with the work as well. Yeah. So, so depression is a real massive problem in the farming community. So how do you help people, Keith? What, what do you offer? Just some words of sympathy or advice or do you, do you navigate people to counsellors and therapists as well? the big part of the job is just listening mm. so you actually listen and so often they will say thank you for helping me for sorting it all out and you've done nothing apart from actually listen they've mm. sorted it out themselves mm. now in some cases they want to know about dating sites and things like that um, so obviously I've got all those sort of details uh, I also know about various gay agencies um, in their their own particular area so the nearest big city to where they are uh, or mm. town etc so I can point them in that direction and do you do it's, any socials or anything like that as well we, we do have in a small way we have when we were in Cheshire we had meals out uh, with, with gay farmers group and that seemed to work quite well um, I'm now living in Northern Ireland where we retired to um, and prior to lockdown, we were arranging meals as well, and they were working quite well. well you're uh, saying but, but it, it's, you with your female partner then, or have you got a boyfriend there? Uh, we got married about two years ago. Um, because we're in Northern Ireland, we had to go to Scotland to get married. Um, oh. But we made, it, we made it legal. We went to Gretna Green. Uh, and stood by the anvil and uh, and did the uh, the ceremony there. Oh, so you're now happily married to your husband? Yes, yes. And, and strangely enough, we're in the middle of rural Northern Ireland, yeah. and no, nobody bats an eyelid. Uh, if, if we pop into the village, uh, are you on your own? Where is he? How is he? Is he all right? Oh. Um, you know, the, the the acceptance has been very, very good in the village. That is fantastic. So, I mean, the gay farmers are out there, actually. Did you, I'm sure you watched God's Own Country, didn't you? I mean, that's just the best film about yes. gay farmers I've ever seen. <laughs> One of the best gay films I've ever seen. What do you think of that? I, I enjoyed it. It was good. Um, I, I also watched uh, It's a Sin. Oh, yeah. Um, and I was a little bit wary of the stereotypes in that um, because a lot of farmers are very, very afraid that they sound gay. So that they will actually say, well, do you think I sound gay? And the vast majority of times they don't, Not, nothing like. Um, but they, they're picked up on the stereotypes that the John Inman, the Larry Grayson, that sort of thing. And they're afraid that that's how they're coming across. But it just sounds like there's a lot of men really living in the closets and, you know, it's, it's almost like we're living in two different countries, isn't it? You know, I go yes. out in cities and see a lot of happier, older gay men 
and yet in the countryside, it's like they're not living in 2021. They're still in the closet and they're not living their best yeah. lives, are they? It's really sad. It, it's, it really is. I mean, over here in Northern Ireland, there is no way that William and I would hold hands in public. If we were in Manchester, uh, London, uh, and even then only in certain areas, mm. um, we would be happy enough doing it. Yeah. But it's, it, it, it is a very difficult situation. Yeah, well, it sounds like, um, yeah, it is, it is a country or it is a world of two halves, isn't it? The city, it is. and, uh, the city yes, and the countryside. Yeah. But it sounds like you're doing great work for, to help gay farmers still, though. Um, so if people want to get more information, where, where should they go if they want to get um, the help that you're providing? So there's the helpline, um, 07837 931894. And there's the website, www.gayfarmer.co.uk. And there's a link on there with the, with the phone number and with an email link as well. Yeah. And you're available 24-7, are you, pretty much? We are. Definitely. No problems at all. Oh, Keith, you're an absolute legend. Thank you. Okay, my pleasure. A big thank you to my guest, Keith Einson, for chatting to me about the Gay Farmers Helpline. Um, you can find it online very easily. I won't repeat the number just because you're unlikely to have a pen on you, aren't you, really? Um, but if you just go to gayfarmers.co.uk, you'll find out a lot more information. Um, and apparently they've also got a Gay Farmers Helpline page on Facebook as well. So very easy to find out a bit more information. But fascinating to find out just how difficult it is for people, you know, not living an urban lifestyle like myself and a lot of my friends, actually what it's like to be gay in a rural community and being a farmer. It's a totally different kettle of fish, isn't it? Or should I say, field of sheep. Either way, a big thank you to Keith for setting it up and helping so many people along the way. We always like to focus on a smaller LGBT community or pride or organisation. So if you've got an idea, do let me know. If you want your organisation to be featured, just drop me a tweet at Emma Goswell on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way to do it. And that... It's almost it for the weekend outing this week. I hope you've managed to uh, listen all the way through and enjoy it. It's been an absolute blast. Thank you so much to all of my guests. Keith Einson from the Gay Farmers Helpline, to Jane Ozan doing all that amazing campaigning work to fight gay conversion therapy, and, of course, to everybody's favourite gay parent, Ben Carpenter. Um, he is trying to raise that money for a sensory room for him and his kids, well, for his kids, basically, his five children with special needs. Please look him up. Ben Carpenter, just giving and go and bug him a few quid if you can. Let's smash that target for him. Come on, Ben. We love you. Let's make this a real story with a happy ending, shall we? Um, do join me next week. We're going to be talking more parenting, actually, as we find out about surrogacy. Where I'll be talking to two dads who went down that route to have their ideal family. Right, that's it from me. Have a wonderful rest of the weekend, whatever you're up to. 